thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Well, hello. It's Sunday, February the 27th, and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And with me, Dr. Kadwani. Now, this week, we're finding out what exercise does to bones, how to detect and treat osteoporosis, and a new way to monitor muscles in the physio clinic. Plus, we've got news of cancers that can heal themselves, a new test for melanoma, and how old bones are helping scientists to develop better treatments for backaches. Thank you, Kat. And we'll also find out what causes cramp and how you can prevent it. If you want to get in touch with us through Twitter, you can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can write on our Facebook page. And to get there, you go to nakedscientists.com forward slash Facebook. Or you can drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dr Kat Arney. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest science breakthroughs and cancers that put themselves right. Kat, what's this all about? Yes, self-healing isn't a word that people usually associate with cancer, but researchers who've been studying a very unusual and rare form of skin cancer that can clear up by itself have learned some lessons that could actually lead to new treatments for the disease in future. So what actually is this self-healing cancer? Well, it's a very rare hereditary cancer called multiple self-healing squamous epithelioma, or MSSE for short, and it only affects a handful of people every year here in the UK, and most of them can actually trace their ancestry back to a single family from the west of Scotland. Now, the disease causes these large, flat tumours on the skin, which suddenly just start healing up of their own accord and go away, and they leave scars, but they don't leave any other lasting effects. Now, because of the way this disease is inherited, scientists know that it must be one gene that's responsible and now they finally found which gene it is and this is work done by an international team of researchers led by Cancer Research UK's Dr David Goody in Dundee and they've published their findings in the journal Nature Genetics this week but in fact it turns out that as well as relating to this very rare cancer it could actually be related to much more common types of cancer as well. So what have they actually found? Well, the scientists took DNA samples from about 60 people with this rare cancer and compared them with DNA from more than 100 of their relatives who didn't have the cancer. And they focused in particular on a region of DNA that previously they thought had the gene in it and eventually they found that the faulty gene is called TGF-BR1. Now, this rather catchily named gene encodes a receptor, a kind of receiver protein that receives signals from a protein called TGF-beta. Now, this tells cells to divide or to stop dividing and the researchers were able to prove that carrying a faulty version of this receptor that doesn't work causes people to develop these self-healing tumours. But also, faults in this kind of 
signalling have actually been found in many other types of cancer as well. Interesting, but why did the tumours actually heal themselves up? Is that the same gene at play? Well, this signalling, this TGF-beta signalling, is very interesting because it's kind of both a goodie and a baddie. So in most cancers, um, TGF-beta signalling tells cells to stop dividing in the early stages of cancer and it kind of puts the brakes on cancer. But after a while, it changes to the dark side and these signals tell cells to divide. But in the case of this rare cancer, this MSSE, the opposite seems to be happening. So the signalling is telling the cells to start growing really crazily and then makes them stop and go back into reverse. Do we know why? Well, this is the thing. So this receptor they found here is just one of many receptors that can actually send, uh, receive these signals, these TGF-beta signals, and that they think that the pattern of signals must be changing as the tumours grow and then heal themselves, allowing the good side of the signalling to come to the fore. Now, although this cancer is very rare and unusual, it could shed light on more common cancers because we know that TGF-beta signalling is involved in many types of cancer. So if we can understand maybe exactly what's happening to the pattern of signals in these cancers and then see if we can maybe manipulate that in more common cancers, perhaps there could be a relevance for a much wider range of cancers and potentially new treatments in the future. Sounds promising. Thank you, Kat. Well, one other thing that leads to enormous numbers of deaths and also morbidity, ill health in most Western countries, is heart disease. About one person in every three will die directly as a result of a heart problem. And the prevailing wisdom is that when you injure an adult human heart, or in fact any adult mammalian heart, then it doesn't put itself right. It in fact forms a fibrous scar and doesn't replace the muscle tissue that's been damaged. But this is interesting because if you look at other less complicated species, and I'm thinking things like fish, then their hearts have an uncanny ability to regenerate. Scientists in the last year or so have demonstrated that you can cut away nearly a fifth of the ventricle, the main chamber of a fish's heart, and it can regrow it, and there'll be no scarring, and the heart recovers normally. So what Enzo Perello and his colleagues, they're based at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Centre, uh, and they've written up in the journal Science this week, what they've found is that what actually happens in fish can also happen in mammals if you get to them early enough. In other words, they were interested in finding out at what stage we end up with this situation where our hearts can't put themselves right. So they took mice that were one day old and they did an excision where they cut away 15% of the tip of the heart's main pumping chamber. And they then watched what happens to these mice. And initially a blood clot forms and then the heart completely repairs itself and after 21 days you cannot see that this procedure has ever been carried out. The hearts function normally, all the muscles are back and the heart pumps normally. And when they did labelling studies by putting chemical tracers into the mice, they could see that the mouse cardiomyocytes, the heart cells themselves, the muscle cells, were actually dividing in these animals and producing new heart cells to make up for those which had been cut away. When they repeated the experiment, though, in animals that were seven days old, just slightly older, then they behaved like the adults and their hearts did not repair themselves. The cells did not re uh, respond by dividing to make good the damage. So this strongly suggests that some funny switch occurs between the time of birth and puts us into an adult state by one week of life in a mammal. If we can find out what that switch is... It suggests that we could find a way to make hearts repair themselves in the same way as they do in fish. And that means instead of having to try to fiddle around with stem cells coming from outside the body or other bits of the body, we could persuade by perhaps injecting some kind of drug the heart that's been injured to put itself right. 
Really good stuff there. That's fantastic news. Now, from moving from hearts to bones, because also in the news this week, scientists have been using old bones to develop new treatments for chronic back pain. Now, 80% of us will suffer from a bad back at some time in our lives, but the condition is hard to treat because the causes of it are so varied. But now researchers have come up with a new way of testing out new treatments with a little help from our ancestors, as Jane Reck has been finding out. The data that we need, we can derive from these older bones. So although the bones are old, what we end up with in the model is the simulation of a, a living spine. I, as an anthropologist, am providing access to data and providing access to analytical techniques which are going back into biomechanical engineering. The unlikely combination of old human bones and the latest computer modelling techniques are being used to develop new ways of treating chronic back pain. Spines from around 40 skeletons housed in various museums and anatomy collections are being analysed in the research, which is taking place at the universities of Leeds and Bristol. The computer modelling side of the work is led by Dr Ruth Wilcox at Leeds. We're using computer models, the same kinds of modelling processes as we'd use in aeronautical engineering or in civil engineering to analyse structures, but using those types of principles to model the spine and to simulate how a treatment would work within the spine. Ruth says they're carrying out the work using latest imaging techniques. Microcomputer tomography scanning is imaging a specimen in three dimensions. So it's similar to the type of technique that we have in a hospital called a CAT scan. In the hospital, a patient is imaged by basically being x-rayed from different angles and then using that to build up a 3D image of the patient. This works in the same kind of way, but we're doing it at a much higher resolution so that we can see the individual strands or struts of bone within the vertebra. And that data we then put into our computer models so that our computer model simulates this variation in bone across an individual vertebra, but also from one patient to another. The bone remains are being gathered and scanned at the University of Bristol's Department of Archaeology and Anthropology by Dr Kate Robson-Brown. Kate explains why they're using such old human remains. Most of the time, at the moment, we get material from more, the more elderly sections of the population. And in order to understand the range of variation within a normal population, we need to have information from younger adult age groups. By using older collections of dry bone, and these are macerated, which means cleaned, dry skeletons from those collections, it allows us to investigate bone morphology in age groups which are not accessible using recently donated material. One of the skeletons we're looking at is that of an adult female. She was quite little. <laughs> she was around five foot two when she died. She was probably in her late 20s or early 30s. We have her complete skeleton. This was a skeleton that made its way into, into the collection, we think, in the 1930s. And this particular individual has a very clean, dry skeleton, so there's no evidence of osteoarthritis, there's no evidence of bone cancer, anything like that. We can't tell from her skeleton what she died of, but it was certainly nothing that is represented on the bones itself. Ruth says the new computer software will speed up the process of clinical trials for testing out new treatments for chronic back pain. The idea by the end of this project is that we'll have these models up and running. 
a company could come in with their design for a new product and, and we could simulate how it would work across this population of, of different spines. So we could reduce the risk when it does go into to clinic and, and prove beforehand that in, in our computer models that it's behaving as it should. And the good thing about the computer models is that we can use them over and over again so we could test lots of different products on the, on the same computer model. Whereas if we were doing this in a laboratory, then we'd need a new spine, a new donated spine each time we wanted to test a new treatment out. Kate says the work could lead to tailor-made medical treatments and even provide new insight into how our ancestors evolved. It would surely be great if we could be in a position where surgical interventions could be assessed for us as an individual against a model of our own bones. We're moving in that direction, but research like this is helping to provide the baseline data on which those developments can be made. One of the really exciting developments that's arising out of this for me as a biological anthropologist is being able to apply this type of modelling technique to fossil bones for which there is no other way of testing them. So, for example, we could take a fossil skeleton that's 3 million years old, scan a vertebra, make a model of it, and actually test some locomotory strategies to see whether that individual in life walked around on two feet or four feet. And that's a major development for evolutionary anthropology. The research is funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. The computer modelling software is the first of its kind for back conditions. It should be available for testing out newly developed products and treatments in the next few years. Well, that's making me want to uh, sit up straighter just listening to that. That was Jane Reck from the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. And we've got some video of that on YouTube with some of the images from that report. You can find it at nakedscientist.com slash news. Now, another thing that's a very important health problem is skin cancer. In fact, the rates of melanoma, one of the most aggressive forms of skin cancer, have gone up 100% in young people in the last 10 years or so. And diagnosing it is not always easy. Usually a mole or a pigmented lesion looks a bit strange to somebody and they take it to a doctor and a dermatologist will usually make a diagnosis clinically by looking at it. But 85% of the time these things can be missed and if you do take a biopsy, a piece of the tissue away and give it to a pathologist, a recent study showed that actually 14% of the time pathologists end up disagreeing about some of the samples they receive as to whether they are a bad lesion or a safe lesion. In other words, nothing really wrong. And the problem is that doctors don't like to make mistakes when it could cost someone their life, and therefore they tend to be cautious in how they manage these kinds of things, and therefore, as a result, we tend to subscribe to the medical mantra of, if in doubt, cut it out. And as a result, people often are over-treated in order to make sure that something doesn't get missed. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a better way of scanning these lesions so that we could find out who is more at risk than others? Well, that could be about to happen because there's a very nice paper by a researcher at Duke University, Thomas Matthews and his colleagues. They've got a paper in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week and they've used a very clever optical technique to address this question. It's called pump probing and what they do, and in this case they've done it using 42 biopsy specimens, but they say this could be applied on the body. You wouldn't need to take even a piece of tissue away from a person. You take the sample of tissue, they zap it with a laser at a certain colour or wavelength of light and then a very tiny amount of time later they zap it again with a different laser light of a slightly different wavelength. And what happens is that the first burst of light bleaches out the background coloration of the tissue 
and the second pulse of light then activates and excites eumelanin. Eumelanin is one of the colours of skin pigments in the skin and it turns out that eumelanin is more commonly present in cancers than the other type of melanin called pheomelanin, which is a more yellow colour and the kind of melanin you get in things like freckles. So if you look at cancers, you tend to find that they contain more of this eumelanin than the pheomelanin. And this pump probe technique with the laser light can disclose and quantify exactly how much of this eumelanin is there, which means that pathologists and dermatologists can potentially make a much more accurate appraisal of the likelihood that a lesion is going to be malignant. Now they tested this out as I say on 42 biopsy specimens and the technique correctly identified the samples that were in there that were real melanomas compared with the samples that were not. So the researchers say that yes this will work beautifully down a microscope but the real good news is that you could also make a sort of probe that would mean you could fire the lasers because they're not being uh, run at a harmful energy into the skin and do the same technique in vivo therefore no, re no reason to do harm to the patient, no need to do an invasive test. Cap. That's really fantastic news. I know that there's some skin scanning techniques out there for kind of trying to look at melanomas because the thing about melanoma is that if you can get it before it's spread, then that's it. You just take it out and it's fine. But as soon as it's spread, it's really difficult to treat successfully. So something like this, this could be really great if we can work out what is a melanoma, particularly for people who are very moly and freckly, where you have a lot and you want to know what's if anything's gone dodgy. And equally, you don't want to over-treat people by giving surgery or even more invasive surgery to people who turn out actually not to need it either. Exactly. If you want to read up on anything we've covered in the news this week, we've got the references and the transcripts for all of our news stories online at thenakedscientist.com slash news. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Mikatani. Now, on the way, we'll find out how exercise can be used to boost bone density. And we've got some fresh scientific insights into osteoporosis, as well as a new way to measure muscle strength. But first, Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham has been asking, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, apart from building baths, sewers and cities and education, it turns out they were also into recycling. And to hear how, he met up with Sheffield University's Caroline Jackson and Harriet Foster from the Norfolk Museums and Archaeology Service. But we've got six vessels, three drinking vessels, there's two jugs and a bottle, and they're all late 4th century. Now we've got here a modern glass, which I am allowed to touch. Actually, you look at this, mass-produced modern glass, and you compare it with these from almost 2,000 years ago, Caroline. These glasses could almost be mass-produced, because they're three glasses, pretty much identical, you, know, you could imagine those in a box at a uh, supermarket or something. Well, that's right. They actually were mass-produced in a way. Glass production, certainly by the 4th century, was something which was prolific. Glass is found in most archaeological contexts. It's all blown glass. This is something which came in certainly in the Roman period. The Romans invented glass blowing, something that perhaps wasn't around in earlier periods. So to produce the glass by blowing is, is very rapid. It's a very easy technique once you've mastered it. So you can produce many, many vessels from a, a small amount of glass. And this is why these have such thin walls as well, because they're blown. How do you know they recycled the glass? 
We've known for a long time that the Romans recycled glass. We've got evidence from a late 1st century AD source that talks about broken glass in Rome being collected up in exchange for items of small worth. And there's archaeological evidence for glass recycling. So we find the equivalent of bottle banks. So what did you do then? We took a lot of material from uh, about 20 sites in Britain and analysed them chemically to see if we could see anything within the compositions which might give us an indication that recycling was taking place. And the results of that were quite surprising. Mm -hmm. They were surprising because of the amount of recycling that we found that was going on. A a significant proportion of the assemblage that we looked at, which was over 500 samples, suggested to us that um, the glass was being recycled in quite large amounts. And that was interesting because it throws up more questions about, well, what does that mean about the supply of glass to the province at the time? Was glass being recycled because there weren't fresh supplies available, or is it something else? Have you got any ideas why this might have been going on? By the the, the late 3rd and 4th century, the Roman Empire is starting to change. The large uh, industrial complexes that you see are starting to decline. Trade is starting to contract. Now, we don't know exactly what was happening with supplies of glass because we don't have any archaeological evidence at this point that is published where we know glass was being produced. So we can't say this factory stopped and maybe that factory started, but we can say that it looks as though that supply of raw glass is starting to decline because there is a greater proportion of recycled glass that you can see in the chemical fingerprint. We've got elements in there which can only come from mixing that can't have come from the raw materials. And that's not just for the common forms and the common colours. Even the sort of more high-status, colourless glass, which is always thought of as something which is reserved for perhaps more specialised vessels. Even that is showing evidence of large-scale recycling. So it's, it's going on throughout the glass industry. OK, so you're learning about the glass, but you can also, by using the glass, tell a lot about how the society was changing as well. Well, that's archaeology. That's what we do. We're, the glass is, is a really interesting material, but it's only interesting in what it tells us about the people who were making it and consuming it. In the same way as we look at any archaeological material, it's there for a purpose. It's there to tell us about people, the individual and society. That was Caroline Jackson and Harriet Foster talking there to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And you can hear the latest edition of the Planet Earth podcast, as well as links to other Planet Earth online resources at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. Those clever Romans, eh? Who would have thought it? Uh, We're talking bones, muscles and things like osteoporosis this week, including what causes cramp and how you can prevent it. That's coming up later, Cap. Now, there are 206 bones in the average adult human, although Dr Chris is clearly lacking in his funny bone and has one less. But how do our bones grow and develop and what controls how strong they become? Now, we're joined today by Professor Tim Skerry and he's from the Mellonby Centre for Bone Research at the University of Sheffield, where he's looking at the impact of exercise on bone density and how bones respond to stress. So, hi, Tim. Hello, Kat. Now, let's start by 
finding out what bones are. When I think of bones, I just think of kind of a skeleton, you know, kind of these hard twigs that are inside us. But it's not like that. What are our bones made of? How do they work? Well, it's certainly very easy to fall into that sort of trap because you see bones in museums and think dinosaurs and they're just sort of lumps of concrete, really. But that's not, not, not the case at all. I think you only have to think about a baby being born and the, the speed with which babies grow into children and then adults to realise the skeleton is quite an unusual material for something that's apparently sort of hard and rock-like. It's made of um, two main components, a, a, a very strong, tough protein, rather flexible, called collagen, and a mineral, which is a calcium phosphate called hydroxyapatite. And these combine to make a thing called a composite material, like fibroblasts and carbon fibre composites, which are extraordinarily strong and very light. So it's a smart material arranged in a smart way, and it can grow and repair itself during life. So the idea that the bones are really kind of dynamic, living things, they're not just sticks in our body, that, that they're constantly growing and changing and repairing themselves. Yes, that's right. And the way you should think about this is really to start with some very simple fundamentals. If you think that when we're conceived and born, no one knows what our lives are going to be. Some of us will be weightlifters, some of us will be more sedentary people, and the sorts of activities we're going to do in our life will vary hugely. Now, if the bones we had were purely determined by some sort of genetic thing, then we'd all have to have extremely strong skeletons for the very small percentage who are going to do extreme activities. And nature doesn't really do that. It doesn't like to grow, maintain and carry around vast amounts of material that for most of us wouldn't be used. So very much like our muscles, our bones respond to what we do. They get strong if we use them. They get weaker if we don't use them so that we're carrying around just enough to do the things we do with our daily life, plus a certain amount of safety factor to uh, cover for those occasional high impacts. When you accidentally fall over or something like that, what, what sort of things can actually affect the density of your bones? How can we make our bones stronger? Well, exercise is the, the most important thing that a single person can do. I mean, everyone talks about genetics, but you can't change that. You can certainly change the exercise you do. And there's no question that if you exercise, certainly um, while you're growing up, it's an extraordinarily potent stimulus to make a strong skeleton. And if you keep exercising through life, then you'll end up having a strong skeleton and being more unlikely to get osteoporosis when you're older. But what do we mean when you talk about exercise? I mean, exercise to me could be anything from Pilates to, to bench pressing or running a marathon. What sort of exercise really builds your bones? Well, the way we can determine this is by measuring what we call strain or deformation. And if you think about a, an eraser that you squeeze between your fingers, then if you squeeze it, it gets shorter. Our bones are exactly the same and they deform. So if I'm sitting down as I am now, my bones are longer than if I stood up. If I stood up, they'd be shorter because they were sort of squashed down. So the strains that we impose by our activities are the things that determine how, whether the exercise has an effect. And so big exercises, big, big loads that deform our bones a lot have um, potent effects on the skeleton, but also exercises that impose those loads very quickly. So impacts, high impacts are more potent as a, a bone-building stimulus than slow, repetitive things. And we can really take this and work out what exercises are good for your skeleton. And they're the things which are doing a wide range of different things, usually quite quickly, 
not things like marathon running, cycling or swimming. Now, it's not to say those aren't good for you, but they're just not particularly good for your bones. And if you measure the bone mass of people who do those activities at high levels, they're very little different from the uh, age-matched people in the, in the population. So fast impacts are, are very good. And if you want a simple rule of thumb, if you do an exercise which makes your muscles bigger then you'll have big bones. If you do a, an exercise which makes your muscles uh, trained for endurance, but they don't get bigger, then it generally doesn't affect your skeleton very much. So uh, high impact would be something like I don't know, squash or jumping up and down. Um, would something like weightlifting count? Weightlifting's good, and it's a very interesting question, because weightlifting's good because they're obviously high loads. But if you think about someone lifting weights, quite often they lift the weight very slowly, but then they might drop it very fast. And in fact, there are experiments which have shown that the direction in which you apply these strains um, doesn't matter nearly as much as the speed with which they change. So it may well be that weightlifters who lift things slowly and drop them fast are getting more exercise for their skeleton by the dropping than by the lifting. How is this actually happening? Obviously, there must be some kind of chemical signals from the bone bending that's making the bones grow. How does this actually work? Well, the bone's full of cells. If you take a, a cross-section of a piece of bone, the actual hard material has lots of cells all the way through it. And these cells have processes which touch each other and they communicate with each other. And these cells, which are called osteocytes, are thought to be the, the cells which can sense the, the mechanical environment of the skeleton. So when the bone bends, fluids flow through the bone and the cells are actually stretched and twisted and compressed. And the combination of those two things means that the cells are able to perceive whether they're being loaded by more than they should be or less than they should be and therefore do something about that. If they see the sort of amount of loading that they're expecting, they'll send signals which keep the bone the same size. If you do less, if you lie in a hospital bed or if you go up into orbit in weightlessness as an astronaut, then that would be seen as low levels of, of signal and that would lead to your bones being resorbed and taken away because you weren't using them very much. That certainly happens in astronauts, but generally from their legs, not their arms, because they're pushing satellites around and doing stuff, but they're not doing very much with their legs, so they lose bone from the parts that aren't being used very much. Now, we're going to be talking later to Ken Poole, who's going to talk about osteoporosis, the thinning of the bones. But you sort of mentioned people who are maybe in hospital or incapacitated in some way would lose their bone density. Are we trying to un find out what these chemical signals are? And is there any way of mimicking them? Maybe we could come up with some kind of drug that could make someone's bones mimic the effects of impact exercise without actually having to go to the gym. I'm smiling at your question because that's exactly what I thought 25 years ago when I started doing my PhD. And I thought after three years I might have some of the answers. It's, it's <laughs> have a very small number of them. Um, it's certainly the key question, I think. We understand much more than we did about the signaling that goes on. But I think there are lots of things we don't know yet. And one of the most interesting things that's to me certainly is that the skeleton can respond to incredibly brief periods of exercise. You certainly don't need to do it for very long. And there are other, other things that suggest that the skeleton can actually remember for probably up to 24 or maybe 48 hours things that have happened to it. And those exercises will potentiate the effect of subsequent exercise. So to me, that's a very important thing, because if we knew more about that, we might be able to make drugs that could either increase the length of that persistence of memory or maybe make it more sensitive as you say potentiating the effect of a walk down to the shops into what to uh, what the skeleton might perceive as a, a vigorous trip in the gym.
Fantastic stuff. Thanks, Tim. That's uh, Professor Tim Skerry from the University of Sheffield, and he'll be with us for the rest of the show. So if you've got any questions for him, send them in now to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Chris. Thank you, Kat. You are, of course, listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're talking about the skeleton, bones and uh, muscles. We'll find out what you can do about the cramp later in the programme. But first, osteoporosis. Now, every year, about 75,000 people suffer a hip fracture in the UK, and the majority of those will be down to the condition osteoporosis. That's the underlying cause of their bones being too weak. And this is basically bones thinning as we age. Dr Ken Poole is with us now. He's a rheumatologist at the University of Cambridge where he's studying how bones weaken and change with age and then some new ways that we can try to use to combat the problem. Hello, Ken. Hello, Chris. Well, thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. First of all, just fill us in, what actually is osteoporosis? Well, exactly as you say, they're, they're porous, thin bones that fracture when they shouldn't. So uh, a, a, a lady walking along, uh, falling over from a standing height, shouldn't break her wrist, but in osteoporosis she might. Bending to tie the shoelaces, fracturing a vertebrae. So the little old lady, why she's little? Because of vertebral fractures that have uh, the bones collapsing. And in the case of hip fracture, a trip or a stumble or a fall, enough to break a hip. If you were to take a piece of bone from someone who has got osteoporosis, how would it compare if you looked at it both macroscopically, just by eye, and then microscopically, down a microscope, with someone who's got normal bone? Well, we do things like this in the clinic. So when we take a piece of bone, from, normally from people's pelvis, the bone has a thick outer shell and an inner sort of honeycomb, which is a mesh full of struts. And in a young person, the, the, the outer shell is nice and thick and the, the honeycomb mesh is also thick, providing lots of support, like the inside of a crunchy bar. Um, if, if, if you have an osteoporotic patient, then the outer shell is very much thinner and, uh, and the, uh, the, the mesh of struts, they, they may not even be there at all or whether they're they're thinned and they don't connect properly do we actually know why this happens i mean are some people predestined to get this because of family reasons is there a genetic cause or is it purely just down to how much exercise you haven't or haven't had and what your diet's been like earlier in your life Th those are all good points. Um, and fractures are multifactorial. So you have the low bone strength and the osteoporosis, but you also have falls. You also have genetic factors. One interesting factor is that if your parents have had a hip fracture, mother or father, then your own uh, risk of a hip fracture is higher as well. And coming into that's things like reflexes as well. So your ability to deal with a fall, which gets worse as you get older. What can we do about it? So if someone's diagnosed with osteoporosis, they have a, a fracture of a wrist or something, they slip in the ice. What can we do once you've picked it up? Part of that job is greater awareness and things like the National Osteoporosis Society are great in that. So sort of saying that this a wrist fracture in an older woman is not something that you can just leave. Um, and you can ask some questions of that person and find out whether they've got very low um, bone density that can, can be improved by drugs. And, and we've got plenty of drugs now that actually help. And, and as was discussed earlier, the exercise will help too. And there's also dietary and, and, and even sunlight things that can help with your bone strength. OK, well, talk us through then how, when you put someone on therapy, how are you monitoring them and taking this forward, you know, in the research domain, what are you actually doing to try to work out how to optimise therapy for this? 
So one of the things that we use at the moment is DEXA scanning. A lot of people have heard of this bone density scanning. That, that is where we put people onto a bed, look at their spines and hips and, and, and work out how, how dense the bone is and compare it to a normal range. But we also know that half of people with hip fractures um, have a normal bone density result or one that doesn't come up as the osteoporosis threshold. So one of the things we need is better ways of picking people up and also monitoring their treatments. And how are you doing that? Well, together with um, some of the, the engineers at the University of Cambridge, we've developed a technique which uh, is based on the CT scans that Ruth was dealt with earlier. Um, it was actually interesting to hear that because we're using CT, which is computed tomography scans of patients, we can now map the outer shell of um, femurs, the femoral bone, and produce a colour map um, of, of how thick the bones are. And it's very interesting to see that in older people, they're often as thin as an eggshell. Um, my wife says that when you get old, your hips go pink because uh, we use pink for less than 0.3 of a millimetre, which is eggshell thin. And we've done a recent study that shows that one of the commonly used osteoporosis drugs called teriparatide, which actually makes bone grow, well, that's, that, that's actually able to put bone in places, just like Tim described, where you have peak strain in the femur, which is a good thing because that's where they often tend to break. Because that's where you want the bone to grow. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, that was going to be my next point, which is people who've got osteoporosis have lost bone mass, they've actually lost bone substance. You want to put it back. How do drugs and doctors attempt to make people who've got thin bones grow new bone and why don't people just do that anyway well there's drugs called bisphosphonates which are a lot of people are on which are once weekly drugs usually and they actually don't make new bone grow they're the most commonly used drugs but they actually stop it being broken down as tim said earlier there's a process going on all the time of cells called osteoclast digging pits in bone and osteoblasts filling those pits back up and in osteoporosis that's out of sync and we use drugs called bisphosphonates which actually stop the osteoclast from digging pits and it allows the bone that's there to harden and off and that actually prevents fracture and they're very effective but right down on the other end of the spectrum the osteoblasts that cause the bone to grow there's a drug called teriparatide which is given given to patients who are really in a bad way with osteoporosis at the moment so they've got multiple fractures and, and our study showed that, that when you give this teriparatide a daily injection it causes bone to grow and that in these particular sites of interest one of the stories i mentioned at the beginning was making hearts regrow and scientists are trying to make a heart that's in an adult think it's in an embryo again because then it will regrow lost tissue could we do the same thing for bones and fool bones into thinking that they're back in a baby so they begin to grow new bone and thereby get rid of the osteoporosis problem well Tim said earlier about the um, vast amounts of material that might be unnecessary to carry around if you had, say, a gene. And in fact, there is a gene, um, the sclerostin um, protein, which is it's a funny name, but it's from a disease called sclerostiosis. And by examining that disease, um, so, um, scientists have been able to find just that, the off switch for forming bone. And by giving people a monoclonal antibody against this protein, you can actually make bone form um, at amazing rates uh, in in all sorts of places and that seems to be the most likely approach to make new bone in all sorts of situations where it's needed. But that sounds a bit dangerous because you could end up growing bone where you don't want to grow bone, as in where you don't need it. And that, that is actually one of the features of the condition sclerosteosis. So the, the we, bone is beautifully regulated and, and held back from doing silly things. And one of the silly things that it can do is if it closes off the inside 
the inside holes called foramina inside the skull, that's a bad place to have bone. And the patients who have this disease actually close off things like their facial nerve cavity, their ear canals, and even the very large foramen magnum that carries the nerves. Um, and, and they can die from this condition. So it's all things in moderation. And, and a lot of work has to be done to make that dose safe. And just to finish off briefly, Ken, so I suppose if you've got systems now that are enabling us to track where new bone is being laid down, if you could work out what the signals are that are active in that site and then tell this gene, which is the bone growth off switch, to activate just in that site, then you'd have a way of thickening up the bone where it needs to be thicker and leaving other sites like the sensitive ones you mentioned unharmed. Working out those processes is, is, is absolutely key. Ken, thank you very much. That was Ken Poole. He is an Arthritis Research UK clinician scientist at the NIHR Biomedical Research Centre in Cambridge. He'll be with us for the rest of the programme, so if you've got any questions for him, um, then do send them in now. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney, and we're talking this week about bones and muscles and new ways to monitor and to repair them. Kat? Now, when muscles are injured or weakened, patients are usually referred to a physiotherapist for help regaining their strength or improving their range of movement, but it can be difficult for the physio to accurately gauge the workload the patient can safely tolerate and the level of improvement that they've made. So now physiotherapist Don Gatherer, who's previously worked with the England rugby team and the British Olympic squad, has come up with an elegantly simple solution. And for this week's Naked Engineering, Dave and Mira have been along to meet him and find out how it works. Well, the challenge is literally objective data. A lot of our work is subjective. In other words, you can say, hey, how are you feeling? Is it feeling better? Are you stronger? But we have no measurement for that. I guess the other problem is that the human body is incredibly good at adapting to a problem. And so if you've got a problem in one place, you'll do all sorts of strange adaptations to compensate for it. Yes, that's exactly. The, the body is a really clever piece of engineering. The reason we've come along here today is because you've designed an objective way to calculate just what's going on in our muscles. Yes, um, there are instruments out there, but they're all sort of fairly big and cumbersome and not portable. So my biggest problem was how could I design a system that is very easy, portable and will analyse all the actions very quickly? Well, you have one of your devices here. So it consists of a harness and a handle with a, a cylinder attached to it. Inside that cylinder is we have a load cell, and these load cells were developed in F1. And so I applied that technology to medicine because of the high quality of the load cell that's uh, produced. So a load cell is effectively a means of measuring force. It's the sort of thing you get in a set of electronic scales, but I guess this is measuring a bit quicker and a bit more accurately. And it's measuring the forces of our muscles. It will measure both uh, compression and traction forces, so it's a bi-directional uh, load cell. So, well, to see your device in action, we've also got Thea Maxfield here with us, who's a horse rider, but also, Thea, you're a patient of Don's. Yes, I came to see Don about a year ago after I had an accident where I fell off my horse and I broke the C2 and C3 vertebrae in my neck, which is commonly called a hangman's fracture. So, um, Don, from a physiotherapist's perspective then, what was Thea's case when she first came to you? Yeah, Thea had uh, obviously been given the all clear from the surgeons to start uh, looking at exercise, exercise programmes. So what we needed to do is to find out the objective data analysis of her neck, how strong it was, uh, whether the muscles uh, had wasted, 
peripheral profile? You know, is there any weaknesses in her arms? So the idea of this is once we know how much force the neck can take, it means that we can then work below that force and apply uh, a load to her neck to strengthen it, but without any risk of injury to the underlying fractures or spine. So this is where your device comes in, measuring just the forces that the muscles can take before they fatigue, really. Well, that's it. We measure two types. We measure how strong they are, and then we can measure how quickly they fatigue. Well, to see how this is possible, Thea is primed and ready. She's sat behind one of your examination couches here. Um, So how would you measure these forces? Yes, what we're going to do is connect the harness up to the load cell, and then we're going to apply the harness to Thea's neck. So her head's really encased within this harness and then there are two kind of strings really coming out to which the load cell is attached and you're holding the handle of this load cell. Yes, the the two strings are really important because they're connected through a pulley and what this does is equalise the force on either side of the head so we don't get any shear or rotational forces during our um, analysis. What we do is uh, position Thea into the correct position of the neck and then we apply a controlled force and she'll hold that force. The test um, will continue until she loses her position. The moment she loses her position, we stop the test. He's trying to pull my head forwards, and what my job is is to keep resisting against it and keep my, my neck and my head upright, and I can only do that so long as my muscles can manage it, and then I give and I lean forwards. Okay, here we go. Right, hold, hold, hold. Good girl, good, good, good. And there we go. That's fine. Thea, you looked quite strained there. (laughs) Yeah, it is quite physically uh, demanding. Don, how is this translating then onto... We've got a big screen behind us and you've selected for the muscles in Thea's neck to be analysed. So what are we looking at on this graph here? We have the graph for uh, neck extension. So what's happening is that um, we tear or zero the load cell. So we have a zero rating. And then as we apply the force, you see the readout appear. And it'll measure the, t- uh, the force as it's been developed. And the moment she loses her position, then we stop the force and then we can then measure the peak and the area below that force. I'm assuming you can test other areas and other muscle groups. We can test the whole body. Shoulder, elbow, hand, fingers, knees, foot, toes, everything, hamstrings. How is this all then put together to give Thea and other patients a, a treatment programme? We'll now have a profile of the actions that we've tested which means that we can then apply a safe load, whether that be a stimulatory load for strength or endurance, and we can achieve our physiological goals because we know that we can uh, apply that particular force, but in a safe way. We won't fatigue the muscle. We won't then cause uh, undue shearing forces um, like across the spine, which could irritate underlying structures like the spinal nerve and so on. So how would you summarise then the real kind of benefits of this system and this way of measurement? It's down to simple terms, objective analysis. We take the readings, we can use those readings, and then from there you can database, you can design training programmes, but uh, you can also look to see at your clinical effectiveness, if they are improving, if they're not improving, and then you can redesign your testing programme. It all bases down to objective analysis. 
That was Don Gatherer from the Gatherer Partnership and his patient, the very willing Thea Maxfield, talking with Mira Senthillingham and Dave Ansell about his new device that could help physiotherapists to identify particular muscle groups in a patient that might be weaker, uh, particularly maybe on one side or the other, so they can get special attention, work out what load they need and work out if they've made any improvement. Now, we've also put up a video of Don's invention on our website so you can see what it looks like in action, as well as other applications of this device at nakedscientist.com slash engineering. Thanks, Kat. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. We're talking with Tim Skerry and also with Ken Poole this evening, and we're discussing the subject of bones and muscles and things, and we have got lots and lots of questions coming in. So let's kick off. Uh, why don't you open the batting for us, Ken? Because Sally Everson in Ely says, what diet and nutrient factors are important for bone strength? That's a very good question uh, from Sally. And, 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 and diet and nutrient is very important. And the one that people think about most of um, is vitamin D. Calcium is also very important. And we, we have not enough vitamin D from sunlight at these sort of northern latitudes. So, uh, so those are important. And, and um, in order to work out how important, you can look at the body mass index. And a low body mass index is a risk factor for fracture. Uh, that's one of the things that we, um, we plug into the World Health Organization FRAX tool, which is a thing that predicts what your own fracture risk is. You can run this on an Apple, on an iPhone, or, a, or or even just on the web from the FRAX website. That's F-R-A-X. And that will tell you what your own risk is over the next 10 years. So, yeah, nutrients uh, and, and, and diet, very important. Sounds good. Anything to add to that, Tim? I don't think so. I think uh, generally Western diets have reasonably good levels of calcium. But, yes, as Ken says, vitamin D could be, could be something that people need to worry about. Now, it's Sean has got in touch on Twitter, at Naked Scientists, if you'd like to do that. He says, why does a healed bone actually behave in a stronger way, if it does, than one which has not ever been fractured. And is that true? Well, yes, actually, as bones heal, a a sort of cuff of new bone forms around the fracture. So when that's healed and stuck together, the clinical union, which is a few weeks after it's broken, there's actually a big, thick load of bone where the fracture was. So that would be stronger than the original bone. But over the time after that, that thick piece will remodel away. It'll be resorbed away by those osteoclasts that Ken was talking about until if you have a fracture as a child, you'll find that within a couple of years, you wouldn't be able to tell that the bone had ever been fractured. So eventually the the strength will go back to what it was. Do you see this on scan, Ken? Can we see it on a scan? Yeah, it's not one of the bones that we normally see with our our DEXA scans, which normally hip and spine. If there were a forearm scan, we'd normally do the one that wasn't broken because we asked that question before people go in. Indeed. Chris, uh, while you're there, Ken, who's in Great Yarmouth, she says her son has been given a steroid inhaler for his asthma and it says one of the possible side effects is osteoporosis. Why should that be? Yes, the, the steroids are one of the classic um, um, bad-for-bone drugs. It's normally um, steroid tablets that are, uh, that are worse than the inhalers, but there is a, a, a smaller effect of the inhalers. Um, and it's, it's important to, if, if, if someone's on a steroid inhaler like that, that they do all the lifestyle things like the diet and the exercise and nutrition to ensure that they get the most out of their bones. Uh, Tim, uh, Costica Sophroni uh, has written on our Facebook page, which you can find at nakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook, uh, and says, bones are formed from cartilage tissue. So how is it possible that in the human body we find cartilage tissue that has not been turned into bones? Well, this is a question that goes to even more fundamental biology than about the skeleton particularly, because it's really the issue which is called patterning. How cells in your fingertip know their fingertip cells, different from liver cells, different from eye cells. 
cartilage cells which are cartilage that's going to become bone have some sort of positional information in their set of genetic information which tells them what to do, whereas cartilage cells that are going to be the surface of a joint have a different set of information. So it's a patterning issue rather than just a, a, a they're not, all cartilage cells aren't the same. There's a set of instructions written into them that tell them what to become, basically. Yes, and knowledge about where they are. Indeed. Um, Ken, this is quite a nice one. Um, I'm not sure if you know from T on Twitter who says, how much force does it take to snap a femur in half? What a gory thought. It's the it's the problem, and, uh, and 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 normally it's thought of in terms of the amount of energy available in a fall, and it, and it's a surprising little amount of the energy, about a fifth to a tenth of the amount of energy in a fall is enough to break that femur, and and with a hip fracture, there's such a thing as the perfect fall. So if you are unlucky and fall backwards into the side, even if you're young, you can snap your femur. Sounds nasty. Uh, Tim, got one for you here from Ryan Chown on Facebook. He says, can we strengthen our skulls and how can we strengthen our spines? Well, this is a really interesting question and it's one, it's a, it's a question that we're actively involved in researching at the moment because, in fact, you don't need to strengthen your skull. It's much stronger than it needs to be for the amount you use it during the day. And the whole concept of this is an interesting one because if you think about the safety factors of different bones, your long bones have a safety factor of about four. That means if you bend them four times as much as they bend normally, you may break them. With your skull, it's about 40 and what that really translates into is that if you exercise and do things with your long bones, uh, you bend them by about 0.2%. With your skull, no matter what you do, you bend them no more than about 0.02%, a tenth as much. And we know this because we put strain gauges onto the skull and long bones of one of my PhD students a few years ago. So we know this is absolutely right. And what it tells us is that the cells in the skull are either much more sensitive to load than cells in long bones or much less sensitive to the lack of load. And either of those would be a great thing to be able to understand. So we're comparing cells from different sites to try and understand the mechanisms behind that so that we might be able to find a a drug treatment for uh, helping people with osteoporosis. To what extent does this reflect the embryology, though? Because long bones form in a different way a cartilage model gets replaced by bones compared with skull, which is formed by sheets of bone growing into tissue as the skull forms in development. So is that a clue? You're quite right. That's a really important question, and it's certainly the first thing we thought of, that the axial skeleton, the skull, the uh, spine and the ribs and uh, bits of the pelvis and the clavicles are formed from the same uh, sort of thing. And In fact, it it doesn't really fit with that. It's not just embryological origin. Certainly when you get those bones and you take the cells from them, they look very similar in adult humans and and animals, and and really that doesn't seem to be the difference. There's something fundamental about the way the cells are embedded in the material and the way that they do the mechanical sensing that seems to be different. And, And that does seem to be a key for the skull, not just any old part of the axial skeleton, because the vertebrae are commonly affected by osteoporosis. But you haven't flushed out exactly what yet? (laughs) Like all science, uh, every question you answer raises another five that you need to do things with, and uh, we're in that position. Um, Luciana Medrano says, I've read our bones' uh, inner tissue gets replaced by fat as we grow older. Is that true, and does it really happen? 
Uh, y- yes, it is true. Um, the, 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 the fat compartment, and it's interesting, the, like, like Tim was just saying, um, the fat cells are part of the, the same lineage um, as the bone cells. So when we get older, we start making more fat cells and less bone-forming cells, and that's an, an inevitable consequence within the bones. Tim, I've got one here from Umer Sim, who has tweeted us, tweeted. He says, do bones stop incorporating calcium after the age of 35? If so, why? They don't actually stop or they don't, they don't lose the ability to do that because actually in our skeletons at about 2 million places in each of us all, all the time, there's a bit of bone removal and bone formation going on. So at, a, at one of those little tiny sites, you can get new bone laid down, new incorporation of calcium. What happens is that the balance between the digging up and the infilling shifts to be more digging up and less infilling, but the ability to form bone and incorporate calcium is still there throughout life. And while you're there, Tim, Max has got in touch and said also on Facebook, is there any difference anatomically or physiologically between the bones of people from different races around the world? This whole idea about people from Africa being big boned and so on. Well, there's certainly some basis for that. Black people do have stronger bones than white people. But I think um, there's, there's more to it than that. And I think Ken probably as a clinician has some, some additional thoughts about that. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. The um, MRC human nutrition team in Cambridge often work in the Gambia, and the bones may look like they're osteoporotic on a scan, but actually they're stronger, and that's one of the paradoxes. Uh, but it's one of those things that when using the FRAX tool, which is a new way of, of finding out people's risk of a fracture, goes in. So you have to make sure you're in the right ethnicity group because it's calibrated by different nations. Oh, that's interesting. So if you don't make an account or take it into account where someone comes from, you could end up with the scan giving you a misleading result for the very reason Tim just mentioned and you just said. That's absolutely right. And there are, there are the numbers available for each of the, of the, of the countries um, that have got data available at the moment. Ken Paul and uh, Tim Scarry, thank you both very much. Kat, over to you. And now it's time to join Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. This week, do you ever get that cramping feeling? Hello, my name is Glenn. I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa, and I would like to know what causes leg cramps and how can I avoid them? This is something even the fittest people in the world suffer. So what can ordinary people do to avoid it? This is Dr. Stephen Juan, the Ashley Montague Fellow in the Faculty of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney. Okay, a muscle cramp is an involuntary and forcibly contracted muscle that simply does not relax. When you use your muscles, you can control them voluntarily in your legs and arms, for example, and they can contract alternately. You know, they can relax and then contract. But when you lose control of this, this is the muscle cramp. Now, about 95% of humans have muscle cramps, have experienced them at least sometimes, some more than others. And it happens particularly in old age, but even children can have muscle cramps. Now, what do we do to prevent them? Well, you have to be very careful about warming up before exercise. You have to be very careful that you don't become dehydrated. And that's why when you see, for example, tennis players getting leg cramps, that's because they're losing a lot of fluid when they're on the tennis court, especially in very, very hot weather. So you have to remain hydrated. You also have to have a high level of potassium in your body because if you have low potassium, then sometimes this can cause the muscle cramps, but also low potassium can be associated with muscle weakness as well. 
Sometimes muscles overshorten themselves, and this can be caused by low sodium, low potassium, dehydration, hypoglycemia, and even hypocalcemia, which is a lack of calcium. So maybe try having a drink and something to replace whatever nutrients you might be missing. Or sometimes it happens because the joint has been flexed too much, and you just have to straighten it out or walk it off. So there's the pain, but what about the pain relief? I'm Andrew McCloskey from Edinburgh, Scotland, and I was wondering how pain relief drugs target pain and why we don't go numb in random parts of our body. How do those tiny painkillers remove a headache of doom? Answers to chris at thenakedscientists.com or write on the forum, and that's at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thank you, Diana. So if you know, do get in touch. You can drop us an email and go on the forum if you've got any ideas. Kat, thank you very much. That's it for this week. I have to say thank you to Tim Skerry and Kempel, our producers Mira Senthalingam, Tom Simpkins, Dave Ansell, Diana O'Carroll and Ben Vowsler. Join us next week when we celebrate the historic trademarking of one of the world's most successful drugs ever, and that's aspirin. If you have any questions about it, though, send them to me, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Until then, have a great evening and see you next week. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.